Hi. On the March 1st fiblet, when I read three stories about early Pinkerton detectives, I mentioned that there were a lot to choose from. I'm back today with three more stories about the operatives that were published in newspapers and one fictional story created by yours truly. I'm your host, Lara, and you'll want to listen closely to what I say. Is it fact or fiction? Ready to play? Choice number one. Billy Pinkerton Arrest of an Express Robber. Chicago Tribune, 5th of March, 1875, page 8. Pinkerton's detective agency has won another laurel by the arrest of Ed Johnson, the Memphis Express Robber, who was captured at Cape Girardeau Friday. The Memphis Appeal has the following account of the affair. For over a week, Billy Pinkerton, the well-known Chicago detective, with other detectives and Sheriff Tyndall of Metropolis, Followed up Johnson. Last Friday, Pinkerton passed him in the road, but failed to recognize him, as Johnson, to complete his disguise, had secured a woman as a traveling companion. Previous to this, the detectives had ridden through swamps, over hills, and spent hours and nights in a skiff upon the river. They passed several dreary nights amid the cheerless solitudes of the swamps, far from human habitation, only to find that the fugitive had left his hiding place and gone elsewhere. To have passed him in the road was too bad, but then Pinkerton was not to be foiled, for last Saturday he tracked Johnson to Cape Girardeau, where he had sought lodgings for the night in a boarding house. Just after sundown, the detectives cautiously approached the house, and the Pinkerton quickly opened the door and entered the room where Johnson was sitting. Although Johnson was not expecting an arrest, Pinkerton recognized the fugitive by means of a photograph, which, with thousands of postal cards giving a description of the robbers, had been distributed throughout the country by the officers of the Southern Express Company. Upon entering, Pinkerton sprang forward and stopped Johnson, made him hold up his hands, while Sheriff Tyndall from Metropolis, Illinois, handcuffed the fugitive, who insisted that they were mistaken in the man, and declared that he was not named Ed Johnson, that he had not been in Memphis for several years. Pinkerton told him it was useless to deny anything, for he knew him too well. Johnson also denied having any of the money, but Pinkerton, upon searching his pockets, found nearly $900. Having been assured that his captor was Pinkerton, he said, If you are a Pinkerton, I may as well give up and make a clean breast of the whole thing. Having secured Johnson, the officers went to Belmont, and there, crossing the river, took the train and arrived here safe with the prisoner yesterday afternoon. Choice number two. Border Ruffian Sexton Robbing Graves, Chicago Tribune, 9th of November, 1857, page 1. During Saturday and Sunday, the public was greatly excited by flying reports that Martin Quinlan, city sexton, and a student at Rush Medical College had been arrested for robbing the cemetery of dead bodies and that two bodies were actually found in their possession. From the detectives of Alan Pinkerton, who were engaged in ferreting out the matter and who made the arrest, we obtained the following account. Some two weeks ago, four bodies were buried in the potter's field. The second day following that of the interment, Joe, the gravedigger, noticed that the graves had been disturbed, and on examining them, found the bodies were removed. The coffins were broken open, the bodies carried off, the coffins replaced, and graves refilled. The gravedigger communicated these facts to Mr. Wright of the firm of Wright and McClure, undertakers in LaSalle Street, and Mr. Wright employed Alan Pinkerton and his detectives. An examination of the grounds satisfied the detectives that the persons who had robbed the graves 
had entered the cemetery with a wagon at the north end and proceeded south along the east side going out upon North Avenue, which divides the Catholic from the Protestant grounds, and thence went to Clark Street. It was deemed advisable to surround the infected district with seven or eight detectives, so it would be impossible for anyone to enter or leave the grounds without being observed. Notwithstanding the close watch kept, no result was obtained until last Friday, when the detectives were rewarded for their long and patient watches. On Friday night, but four men could be spared for duty, and these were placed on the outside of the cemetery enclosure so as to prevent all egress and leaving the places of entry unguarded. This was necessary in consequence of the smallness of the force on duty. The detectives took up their positions about 10 o'clock and silently awaited any developments which might take place. The night was so dark that they could see but a very short distance, and nothing could be heard save the ceaseless dashing of the waves upon the shore. It was a solemn watch that, among the graves of so many dead, and stout hearts that had beat calmly in times of visible peril would have quailed in those silent hours as visions of ghosts and yawning graves came up that would not avaunt in the pall-like darkness. But the detectives watched on, and whatever of superstition may have chilled their hearts, they remembered that darkness is ever the favorite cloak of evil, and they were impelled to greater vigilance. About half past eleven o'clock, their watchfulness was rewarded by the approach of a buggy, slowly and noiselessly moving along North Avenue through the deep sand towards Clark Street. After a hasty consultation, it was decided that two of the detectives should follow the wagon and ascertain the business of those driving it, while the other two continued the watch. Hiding under the fences, sometimes creeping on their hands and knees, the detectives followed the wagon without being observed until it reached Clark Street when the horse was put into a brisk trot and they were obliged to run in order to keep pace with it. Just before reaching Chicago Avenue, the harness became disarranged. The horse was stopped and one of the men got out to fix it. The detectives instantly came up and one of them seized the horse by the head and the man on the ground by the throat. This man proved to be Marvin Quinlan, city sexton, and was recognized by the officer whom the sexton called by name. Meantime... The other detective had brought his revolver to bear upon the two men in the buggy and warned them that any attempt to escape would be rewarded with a bullet. The horse was very restive and speedily backed into the ditch. One of the detectives got his leg entangled in the wheel and, in order to relieve himself, withdrew the aim of his pistol for an instant, and the men in the buggy instantly jumped out and fled in different directions. The detective in charge of Quinlan, knowing his man and that he could recapture him readily enough, let him go, and both officers took after the fugitives. The night was too dark to follow them, but one detective fired two or three shots at his fugitive as the latter scaled a high fence, failing, however, to even wing him, and he escaped. The other fugitive ran into the backyard of a house and soon dodged his pursuer. When the officers returned to the buggy, they saw Quinlan making off, and firing a couple of shots after him soon brought him up standing. The detectives then took Quinlan and the horse, buggy, and dead bodies, of which there were two, a man and a woman, to Pinkerton's office. The detectives state that after reaching Clark Street, they could readily smell the bodies, and this confirmed them in their suspicions that they had found what they were in search of. The bodies were in canvas bags and carefully packed and secured with ropes. One of the bodies was of a man and the other of a woman. Both were delivered to the coroner, who had them reburied. Early on Saturday morning, Quinlan was taken before Justice Milliken and committed for trial in default of $2,000 bail. It was now necessary to discover the two men who escaped. The detectives could not recognize them in the dark, but it was suspected they were students of the medical college. The detectives had the horse and buggy still in their possession, and they determined to make use of the sagacity of the animal to aid them in their search. Two of them got into the buggy 
and giving the horse the reins, he wandered up and down different streets for a couple of hours when he finally brought up at Wright and Courier's livery stable in Michigan Street. Here the detectives learned the horse had been hired about 7 o'clock on the previous evening, and they also obtained a minute description of the person who hired him. This description was found to be an exact fit for Eli York, a medical student who lives in southern Illinois. York was arrested, brought before Justice Milliken, and required to give bail in the sum of $800, which he did, Dr. Brainerd, president of the college, becoming his surety. The third man who was found in the wagon is still at large, but he will be shrewd enough if he manages to escape, as every measure has been taken to ensure his arrest. This is one of the most atrocious cases which has been known in our city, and it is to be regretted that the penalty, a fine of $500, is so slight. The next legislature should make body snatching a penitentiary offense. Choice number three. Four Masterpieces Saved by Pinkerton. The Chicago Tribune, the 23rd of May, 1879, page 8. The Chicago Academy of Fine Arts will soon be opening its doors to visitors, and thanks to the efforts of Alan Pinkerton and his agents, the walls of the galleries will be adorned with all of the masterpieces curators intended for display. Just over a week ago, four works by the renowned Rembrandt and Degas disappeared from a locked storeroom within the new hall. During the construction of the new Academy building, John N. B. Patterson, Roman Bodwell, Thomas Monroe, and Rind Walker posed as painters complete with scaffolding, drop cloths, and brushes. The four men painted by day. When it became necessary for the young men to stay late to complete the project, these four volunteered to let their fellows return home to their families. The next day, the foreman, Ernest Hunt, was admiring the quality of their work when Dr. Adriance, the museum director, gave a scream and rushed out to exclaim about the missing paintings, which were among the most precious of the exhibition and on loan from the Boston Museum of Fine Art. The Pinkerton men were consulted and their suspicions fell immediately on the young men when the foreman mentioned that the four had not shown up for work the day after the paintings went missing. The sleuths used the addresses listed on their employment records to trace the boys to their homes. A thorough search of the premises yielded nothing, until one of the Pinkerton men chanced to notice a wardrobe with a false back in Monroe's rooms. The agent soon separated the back from the closet and discovered one of the missing paintings. After this discovery, the men examined the furniture of Patterson, Bodwell, and Walker, and found the three other masterpieces hidden behind the clothing and the belongings of the men. Currently, all four of the men are sitting in the county jail awaiting sentencing. When the thieves' identities became known, Project Foreman Hunt was astonished. He told this reporter, That's a crying shame. They were hard workers. Choice number four. Another railroad depredation stopped. The Chicago Weekly Tribune, 22nd of September, 1855, page 3. Through the efforts of Messrs. Pinkerton and Company of the City of the Northwestern Police Agency, another culprit engaged in depredations upon the Michigan Southern Railroad has been brought to justice. During the month of June last, obstructions were frequently placed upon the track between Sturgis and White Pigeon. They generally consisted of billets of wood, rails, and such materials, but no accident ever occurred on account of them. The company used every effort to detect the perpetrator and placed the matter in the hands of Pinkerton and Company. After the arrest of the men at Calumet Station by Pinkerton a few weeks ago, the depredations at White Pigeon were suspended, but the detectives continued their investigation to find out the criminal, and after a long and trying effort succeeded. Mr. Pinkerton fastened the crime upon a young man named Alonzo West, who was arrested a few days ago. 
indicted in the St. Joseph Circuit Court at Centerville and pleaded guilty to the charge. The sentence is deferred for the present. West is the son of a farmer living near the road and is about 17 years of age. He says he obstructed the road merely to see a smash-up, that he did not desire to kill anyone. He has respectable connections who are overwhelmed with distress at the revelation of his crime. Well, folks, those are your four choices. Take a few minutes to consider them while I read you an advertisement from page one of the July 28, 1877 edition of the Chicago Inter-Ocean. Pond's Extract, the people's remedy, the universal pain extractor. Note, ask for Pond's Extract, take no other. Here, for I will speak of excellent things. Pond's Extract, the great vegetable pain destroyer, has been in use over 30 years and for cleanliness and prompt curative virtues cannot be excelled. Children, no family can afford to be without Pond's Extract. Accidents, bruises, contusions, cuts, sprains are relieved almost instantly by external application. Promptly relieves pains of burns, scalds, excoriation, chafings, old sores, boils, corns, etc. Arrests inflammation, reduces swelling, stops bleeding, removes discoloration, and heals rapidly. Ladies find it their best friend. It assuages the pains to which they are peculiarly subject, notably fullness and pressure in the head, nausea, vertigo, etc. It promptly ameliorates and permanently heals all kinds of inflammations, and ulcerations. Hemorrhoids or piles find in this the only immediate relief and ultimate care. No case, however chronic or obstinate, can long resist its regular use. Varicose veins. It is the only known sure cure. Bleeding from any cause. For this, it is a specific. It has saved hundreds of lives when all other remedies fail to arrest bleeding from nose, stomach, lungs, and elsewhere. Toothache, earache, neuralgia, and rheumatism are all alike relieved and often permanently cured. Physicians of all schools who are acquainted with Pond's extract recommend it in their practice. We have letters of commendation from hundreds of physicians, many of whom order it for use in their own practice. In addition to the foregoing, they order its use for swellings of all kinds, quinsy, sore throat, inflamed tonsils, simple and chronic diarrhea, catarrh, for which it is a specific chillblains, frosted feet, stings of insects, mosquitoes, etc., chapped hands, face, and indeed all manner of skin diseases. Toilet use. It removes soreness, roughness, and smarting. It heals cuts, eruptions, and pimples. It revives, invigorates, and refreshes while wonderfully improving the complexion. To farmers, Pond's Extract. No stock breeder, no livery man can afford to be without it. It is used by all the leading livery stables, street railroads, and first horsemen in New York City. It has no equal for sprains, harness, or saddle chafings, stiffness, scratches, swelling, cuts, lacerations, bleedings, pneumonia, colic, diarrhea, chills, colds, etc. Its range of actions is wide and the relief it affords is so prompt that it is invaluable in every farmyard as well as in every farmhouse. Let it be tried once and you will never be without it. Caution. Pond's extract has been imitated. The genuine article has the words Pond's extract blown in each bottle. It is prepared by the only persons living who ever knew how to prepare it properly. Refuse all other preparations of witch hazel. This is the only article used by physicians and in the hospitals of this country and Europe. History and use of Pond's extract in pamphlet form sent free on application to Pond's Extract Company, 98 Malden Lane, New York. Yes, folks, Pond's Extract was produced by the same company that later supplied the world with 
Pond's Cold Cream, which is still sold in stores today. Pond's extract was a mixture of witch hazel, alcohol, and water. And according to cosmeticsandskin.com, by the early 20th century, the claims that Pond's extract was a cure-all, like I just read, had stopped. Their focus was more on its benefits as a soothing lotion for skin problems like insect bites and sunburn. Pond's Extract Vanishing Cream is a, quote, typical beeswax borax emulsion made from mineral oil, which was first marketed to customers in 1904. One of the more entertaining stories about Pond's Extract Vanishing Cream is that when it was first introduced, it was packaged with a little spoon to keep dirty fingers from contaminating the jar. Some users decided that if it came with a spoon, then it was meant to be taken internally. Complaints about the taste of the cream were the first hint for the company that customers were not using it properly. Fortunately, Pons used advertising to let the public know that it was for topical use only and the problem was ameliorated and permanently healed. Well, I know you're all listening to learn if you chose the fictional article from the actual ones. Was it choice number one, Billy Pinkerton, arrest of an express robber? Choice two, border ruffian Sexton robbing graves? Choice three, four masterpieces saved by Pinkertons? Or four, another railroad depredation stopped? Drum roll, please. The article I created was Four Masterpieces Saved by Pinkerton. I tried to incorporate some facts into the story to make it more believable. Uh, for example, Rembrandt and Degas were celebrated artists in 1879, and the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts was founded in 1879. The name was changed in 1882, and shortly after, the institution was already in need of a new name, a new home for its expanding collection and growing student body. Now it's known as the Art Institute of Chicago. I made up all the stuff about the theft and the first director, but hey, it's fiction. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Monday with another full-length episode. Until then, listen carefully because it's tricky to know if it's fact or fiction. Goodbye.